Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck, and I'm your host, and your name is Listener, and that's what you do. You listen. Happy Memorial Day, y'all. That's right. Three-day weekend. Mmm. Yes. That gets me right in the work week. Sorry for the plane going overhead, but I'm recording this in my car on my iPhone, because I'm a piece-of-shit podcaster. Or at least I have no respect for the auditory medium, but the reality is... People gotta get a little time off, and your boy forgot to get in his podcast on time, so I'm doing the right thing by getting it in on time, by doing the wrong thing by my listeners, giving them a substandard product. It's fine. Listen, the reality is, what do you you tune into this because it's, you know, an audio experience? Okay, of course that's why you tune in, but you know, you're you're not expecting incredible acoustics, are you? There are so many other podcasts that really trump my setup. I mean, the reality is I'm like a dude with two microphones and and a hard drive. But, you know. Uh Uh-oh, here comes the fire department. Big fire truck about to come by. Huge. Diesel. Ah, They're all looking at me. They're all so masculine. Those firefighters. I think in a world where you have to decide whether you want to be a firefighter or a police officer, I mean, just assuming if you wanted to do, like, public service and make 70 grand a year and, you know, uh, be a public servant, I, I, I you got to go fireman, right? I mean, God, uh, being a police officer, it's, it's thankless. Even when it's good, it's bad, right? I mean, firemen, they're just saving people. They're getting cats out of trees, get to hang out, sleep at the station, have have a nice day off from the old family once or twice a week, eat those delicious, you know, banquet-style meals, because you know they got to cook big. You're not getting a specific order if you're a fireman, trust me, all right? You don't like onions in your lasagna? Sorry, you're eating it. What am I going to adapt it? I got 10 other knuckleheads I got to cook for. Charlie? Jesus, pick the meat out if you don't want meat in your lasagna, all right? I'm cooking here. Just be happy you got something to eat. Now go to bed and be ready to wake up at 3 a.m. and get to slide down that awesome pole, which sounds awesome. Man, I just want a job in which I have to get dressed quickly. I'm talking, you know, firefighter, surgeon, Search and rescue, 
I don't know. What else do you have to, like, dress quickly for? Um, yeah. So, you know, Memorial Day. Great. Hope it was great for you guys. Three days of just pure joy. And this marks the beginning of that season, you know? It's like Memorial Day, friggin' Fourth of July, and then eventually Labor Day, and that's kind of like, that's the sad three-day holiday, am I right? It's like the last hurrah into the, you know, the fourth quarter of the year. Here we go, this last couple months to reflect and begin the holidays where I have to see family members whom I don't talk to during the year, and... And we're probably going to have some passive-aggressive interactions at the old Thanksgiving table, but so be it, because we are slightly related, so we have to do this. It says so. Tradition. Um, what else? I sold a show. Well, I have a TV show in development. I don't know why I'm telling you guys. I feel really cornball saying that. But then I don't? Like, I, I don't know, I just kind of want to share with you guys, and the reality is, anything in development, there's, like, very small chance that anything gets made ever, so, and, you know, <laughs> my buddy Matt Cole Weiss said to me the other day, he's like, because he's got a bunch of things that are kind of in the works, and he's waiting to hear on, like, the big decision makers to decide if they want to make his projects, and he kind of said, well, I don't have a lot of hope, because I know what God thinks of me. <laughs> And while that's a pretty uh, negative, neurotic, Jewish outlook on things, I, I subscribe to that at times. I sure do have that. So while there's a part of me that wants to be like, hey guys, I want to share good news because I love you guys and you support me. And even when I don't have TV shows in development, I have this podcast, which A, is joyful and I'm passionate about and it means a lot to me that any of you listen. And B, you know, hey, listen, I don't hate money. And this makes me some. Not a lot. Not a lot. But I get a free Casper mattress out of it here and there. A couple free native deodorants and some uh, some 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 other perks. A quip toothbrush or three. So I'm doing just fine. You know? You don't have to be jealous of me. Um, but anyway, I you know, I want to share it because uh, it's cool. And we'll see. I'll keep you abreast. I can't really talk about it. I have to do that douchey move of being like, I can't really say. But I can't. And also, who cares? You know what I mean? But if it goes well over the next couple months and it eventually gets greenlit, then I'll tell you about it. And uh, and then that'll be a thing. And then that, I'm sure, I'll, will make me feel good about myself for a, a compartmentalized small amount of time until uh, the crushing insecurities sort of flood back in. No, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I did a podcast today with my friend Lisa Lampanelli. She has a new podcast on Podcast One, so I'll plug it now so that I can feel good about what I'm going to say next, which is that I felt, well, it was, you know, she's a life coach now, and, and she's very good at it and insightful and, and has had quite the life, and so the whole sort of premise is you go in and you sort of talk about your life and, and maybe troubles or things that have the, that have plagued you and things you're working on. And anyway, we, we went into some things that I was not expecting to go into and I don't feel great about. Like I'm sort of still recovering from hours later. Um, and that is, yeah, I felt like a little bit in the daze after that. So not quite sure how to feel about that because podcasts, I don't know. 
I just kind of want to have a silly goose time. Talk it up. Chap, chap, chap it up. You know what I mean? Not sure I need to go that deep. But that's just me. I've gone deep enough. I've felt the feelings. God, I've been talking about my fucking place in this world in my life, my entire life. You know? Eventually, the gift of age is you get tired of hearing your old story. And I'm not old, but I'm not young. And I've read this book before, and it's a goddamn trilogy. And I don't want to hear, you know, I don't want to reread The Lord of the Josh. You know what I'm saying? This isn't, uh, this isn't Goosebumps. I don't want to, you know, it's not a serialized series. I've, trust me, I'm well versed in the intricacies that is Josh Peck. And while it was quite the ride, I'm glad it's over. You know what I mean? I'm glad to be entering into this next chapter that it can be about my kid and my wife and less about me. Less about me. That's going to be the name of my new book. Less about me. And then probably the book will be all about me. Anyway, today's podcast, Casey Neistat. Heard of him? I mean, I love this guy. hes I don't know whether it's because he's cool, smart, really successful, a Jew, a family man, or all of the things. Maybe he just has all the things that I want, and, and thus I, I overly identify. But anyway, I just find Casey incredibly impressive. He's a filmmaker, YouTuber, sold his uh, tech company to CNN for a gang of money, but overall is just a good dude. And I feel lucky to have been uh, become friends with him over the last couple of years because I started out as a fan, as you'll hear, in 2016. So getting to meet people that you look up to and finding that they exceed your expectation is, is always a lovely thing. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Here's Casey. Okay. What's the distance from your mouth that you like? Whatever you're comfortable Like that? With. Yeah. I know, but I don't want to be popping if you're not popping. Oh, you're killing it. Ah, those levels are dreamy. Look at this. Look at us. We're podcasting. We are podcasting. This I, is your life. I have to apologize to your audience. I encourage Josh to go down to my other studio where <laughs> it's quiet, where there's perfect acoustics. Sure. And he no-node, it's great, me. So I, if you're hearing construction or... Um, you're definitely going to hear buses, and you're going to hear police sirens. That's Josh Peck's fault, not mine. That's a little flavor. A little flavor. Right? Yes. Listen, there are plenty of podcasts with perfect acoustics. Go listen to fucking Joe Rogan if you that, want This that. is what sets you apart. If you want some real life here. <laughs> um, could you have imagined any of this? Jeez, I thought, was, I thought you were going to lob me a couple softballs here, <laughs> Josh. You're just diving right into it. Um, how about this? I never, I could have been never, I could have never imagined it manifesting this way. But I think that there was always such an, I always had such an appetite for more that I knew that one way or another that appetite would be satiated. Um, but I don't think in a million years I thought it would happen like this. Did you have moments when you were, how old were you when you had your son? Um, he was born two weeks after my 17th birthday. So you're 17, washing dishes. Yeah. Connecticut. Pot washer. Yeah. Pot washer. No money. No. Well, I made $320 a week before taxes. It was like 270 after taxes. Strong. <laughs> Strong. <laughs> did you, uh, w did you ever have any moments of despair where you feared that maybe it wouldn't like this would be your life? 
Um, that it might not dis- work out. D- despair, no. That it might not work out, no. Um, if I'm going to go a little deep here, and this is, I, I don't know that I've ever um, verbalized this before, but when my baby mama dumped me, so Owen, my son's mom, broke up with me when I was like 19 when he was two. Mm. And just for context, she and I, she was pregnant like three weeks after we met. So there was no like courtship or romance. Um, we, we liked each other. She's a lovely person. But there was no like, yeah. it was like a, an idiot teenager having <laughs> sex for the first time. And, no vetting. Right, yeah. Um, the, the, the relationship wasn't predicated on love. It was predicated on stupid teenagers. Mm. Uh, and that, that's not to diminish the relationship that she and I ultimately had, which was far deeper. In any event, when she did dump me, um, I was sad for a million reasons, but I remember right when she dumped me being really sad because at that moment I had to confront the fact that this life wasn't going to happen. And that life that I imagined then was like staying in Southeastern Connecticut, but like instead of being a dishwasher, maybe I could be one of the cooks. And instead of living in a trailer park, maybe we'd have a house that wasn't on wheels. Mm. And so I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense or maybe that's too, too nuanced, but it's like, the only time that I sort of pictured a lifestyle like that, you know, like a lifestyle like I, I experienced when I grew up, like a lower middle class kind of like regular lifestyle, um, the only time that I pictured that was when I had to acknowledge that that was no longer going to be my reality. Does that make any sense, Josh? No, it does. So you, yeah. Um, well, you were adjusting to your environment. Then maybe you were just going to make the best of what you had. Well, No. Well, to be like the chef instead of the dishwasher or... Right, but it was never, um, it was never that that was, it was never that that was what I was going to have or what I was comfortable with. It was just when I had to realize that that's what it wasn't going to be. Mm. Maybe I'm not, maybe we're saying the same thing. It just doesn't, it's like I've, I always lived in a fantasy world. I still do. Sure. Where all I do is I fantasize about this life that I'm not living, but that I will one day live. And right now, like it's, pretty fucking close to the reality you know like we're gearing up to move out west so a lot of my fantasies right now are about being closer to my family and getting Mm. to see my nephew more often and getting to go outside with francine because there's not three inches of snow on the ground like that's what it is now like i I have no complaints there's very little want in my life i'm very lucky but back then my life was 99 percent want i was in a permanent state of fantasy Um, all I ever thought about was the life that I wished I could have. Mm. And the only moment that that fantasy was broken was when she dumped me. Because then it was like, oh shit, now I have to realize that I'm not going to have that life, even though that wasn't necessarily the life that I wanted. Does this make, is this? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, I would say it's interesting, right? Because I've lived my entire life and still to a certain point, and now I, I just had a kid two months ago, where I thought like, when would being a grown-up begin? Like, when did life officially start? I felt in a preparatory phase for life up until two months ago. Like, in the sense of, I'm not quite a grown-up yet. I'm not quite ready to jump into whatever this thing, this was, this projection of adulthood looked like. And then, for better or for worse, there have been these touchstone moments throughout my life which have made me realize, like, no, life is in session and I'm living it. And I'm 32. Well, uh, what does that, what does grown-up mean? I guess like how I'm relating it to you is I've, I too have lived in a fantasy world for most of my life. And then to realize in moments that like, well, I'm in it. 
Like there's no start line. I've already begun the race. So I imagine at having these moments at 17 or at 19, it was a bit of that like, oh, life's already in session. I've already begun. My adolescence is over. The protection of childhood is done. And I'm in it. You know, I have to suit up and show up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the reason why I ask you like what adulthood means is because I, I would almost describe my life as like an inverse of that. Like I, even though I, I was very much rooted in, in fantasy because I was unwilling to confront the life that I had as being like, this is, this is the best I could do. It's like, no, 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 I'm just on my way. Mm. But I remember vividly, like when I called my dad when I was 16 years old, this is after running away from home and I moved to Virginia, you know, I was in another state and I hadn't talked to my parents in six, I literally hadn't spoken to my parents in six months. That's amazing. Cause I feel like people, kids would run away and be like, I'm going to Key West. And you're like, I'm going to Virginia. And my brother, I mean, the reason my brother was in college there and sure. it was the only place I could think of to go. Yeah. Um, uh, but I went down there, like got a, I didn't live with him. I went down there, got a job and, but I called him to tell him that my girlfriend was pregnant. And I was having a baby. And I remember my dad saying like, you know, he would never suggest to not have the kid or anything like that. But he asked, what are you going to do? And sure. I knew exactly what he meant by what are you going to do? And I said, we're going to have the kid. And he was like, how, why? And I, I remember being really aware of like, look, I, I'm, I'm ready to take responsibilities for my actions. And in that moment, I was super, super aware, even at a young age, that that meant like, Ugh, there was this almost sense of relief that like, great, life can finally begin. Mm. Like I now have total agency over my life. Great, let's go. Let's see what I can do. And there was a sense of satisfaction in that. Like I, 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 I was, I washed dishes, but I wasn't a dishwasher. That was just, that was the rung on the ladder. You know that game shoots and ladders? Sure. We like got to navigate. I was just, that was the square that I was standing on that day. And like when they let me do prep work two days a week and then wash dishes four days a week, I was like, great. And I like, get to go to the next step. Was there any of that, um, like Bourdain talks about in Kitchen Confidential, like any of that uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the in the back kitchen? I was in a really unromantic restaurant. <laughs> it was like a, a tourist trap seafood place that was not good. You know, like we served, the hamburger patties were frozen blocks and like that. Solid. It wasn't a good, re it was very much like there was a book, a three ring binder that explained how to do everything in the restaurant. So it was much more like being a being like a factory worker than it was being a, a an artist or a chef. Yeah, you were at a, a, a off-label Red Lobster. That's that's almost literally what it was. I mean, not to say there wasn't like, I remember everybody treated me in the restaurant because I was the youngest. I was 16. I was this dopey, funny-looking 16-year-old who the restaurant owner was doing a favor by giving me a job because he felt bad for me. Um, but I remember like everybody really picked on me because it's like a real hierarchy yeah and like in frat boy kind of like boot camp environment back there where it's like it is there's a social structure and get in line and i remember these guys just beating on me and beating on me and that's when i realized that like there's a direct relationship between my behavior and how they treat me mm. and when i realized that like when they would pick on me instead of trying to come up with witty comebacks which most of the time weren't that witty because i'm not that funny like that's not where my wit lies fair if instead i just gave him a dirty look uh that said like fuck you motherfucker like don't say that about me how dare you um then they would be a little bit scared of this like 16 year old dope and like i remember one guy one time like i i made myself lunch and, like one of the other cooks who's a total prick came over and like took a french fry off my plate 
and I didn't break eye contact with him, and I picked up the whole plate with my lunch on, threw the whole thing in the garbage. Just as like, fuck you. Don't fucking touch my food. And Strong. Like, and then he was like, you know, he like didn't mess with me thereafter. And like, it was such a, a, an awakening for me. Because it was like the only social structure I'd ever experienced prior to that was high school. And all of a sudden I'm around these grown men, these adults. And they're like, you know, they're, they weren't bad guys. But these are guys who, you know, they're, they've, they're, they're grown adults who are working for, I was getting paid $8 an hour and they were getting paid 10 12 or 14 dollars an hour on the highest end like that was the kind of people that i was around like this was that's where they landed so it was like they i learned a lot from that a lot about how to deal and talk to and communicate and how to earn respect and how to be treated and how to treat people i imagine that chef went back to the other employees in the kitchen and were like this nice cat and this nice that kid's fucking nuts like, it's crazy Just, yeah there was a lot of that and yeah. then also i remember um Another, like, when I figured this one out, I felt like I had, I had, like, cracked Da Vinci's codex when I realized that if I could make all the girls, all the women that worked in the front, because most of the wait staff was women, and most of the kitchen staff were men, if I could make the wait staff love me and the kitchen staff fear me, nobody would fuck with me. Right. And um, once I did that, like, I felt like I was the king. Um, so I'm going to concede right now and say that you were right. Because I feel like there is a small war going outside, going on outside. <laughs> I feel bad for anybody listening to this. <laughs> Should I mean, we go downstairs? Should we relocate? We can we can go downstairs, or yeah, or we could go to my back room. Whatever you want. Look at this; it's going to be a two part podcast. All right, let's go to the back room. I love it. All right, guys, see you in a minute. And we're back. You will still hear some if you listen really intense. If you have really high quality headphones, you'll still still hear some New York City, but much less. Some sort of Bose, perhaps, or a Sennheiser. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Bose and Sennheiser. Yeah. Hello, hello. Oh, that's good. Better. Yeah, it's perfect. Um. So, what you were talking about before is sort of like these. I would say, like defense mechanisms or. Or, or strategies in which to get through your life, especially in the early stages of working in this kitchen. And I think for a lot of people, these experiences, it's hard to see it early on and how they'll benefit you in the long run. So were there moments in which seeing your life change so dramatically over the last 15 years where you saw like strategies that you had acquired in the kitchen that you implemented into working with Samsung or like... How it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, to to like get really specifics. I think this will really. Um, this is a really specific answer, but I remember once, like right when I, um, there was some talk in the kitchen, and somehow World War Two came up. Um, I think one of the guys used to be a cook in in the armed forces. Somehow World War Two came up. Somebody said something. And one of the guys was like, no, it wasn't 1943, it was 1941. And I remember hearing that conversation, turning around, walking into the walk-in refrigerator and shutting the door. Because I knew that World War II happened, but I couldn't have told you which decade it took place in. I couldn't have told you anything about World War II. I dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. Like I had no, I don't even think I made it to a, any history class of relevance. And I remember in that moment being like, if somebody were to ask me or somehow were to trip into that conversation, I would have to reveal that I know nothing. Mm. 
And so what I did is I then went and bought a book. Um, I actually can tell you the book. It's called The Second World War by John Keegan, who's a military uh, historian at the Royal Military Academy. He died like four years ago. I'm a huge fan. I got this like 900-page textbook called The Second World War, and I read it cover to cover. And then the minute I finished reading that book, I then knew more than anybody in my own like 17-year-old brain, uh, anybody about World War II. So then no matter what the conversation was, I'd make sure it landed at World War II. So like one of my early, one of the things that I used to do to make myself feel smarter, because um, I think I've always, you know, I'm, I think I'm like a pretty smart guy, but definitely have no, no the only education that I have is like a, what I've learned myself, or what I've taught myself. So I'd always focus on the things in the areas where I considered myself an expert. So like it didn't matter what anybody would be talking about in the kitchen. I'd make sure it landed at World War II. Solid. And then I could cite super specific instances and talk about very specific battles. And everybody would be like, damn, Casey's fucking smart. Huh? <laughs> They're like, Casey, make that roux. And you're like, you know when they had great roux was in Normandy, 1944. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. June 6, 1944. Great roux that day. Excellent roux. Um, but no, and then I, I sort of continued that. And like I, you know, now I, I, I'm... I'm a pretty well versed guy and it's because I've I've taught myself and I realize things like the power of reading is silly and, and trite as that may sound, like read a fucking book. Right. And, you know, teach myself about everything that I could possibly learn about. So I'm never in those moments where people are discussing something that I have no clue what it is. I mean, you and I had like a 25 minute conversation last night about like fairly nuanced political issues and it's because like, you know, I'm an, I'm a news junkie. I have such an insecurity about being in a place where I don't have an understanding of what's being discussed, that I now make sure I, I have some grip on most things that are happening or may happen in the world. Have mo with all this sort of outward validation of who you are, have many of those insecurities that were, I'm sure, deep-seated at a young age been satisfied? Because I know in myself, sometimes I'll be like, all the logical, everything on paper says that like, you're okay, Josh, you've made it, you're a value. And then certain days I'll just be like, ah, you're just a chubby 14-year-old that you always were. <laughs> um, yes and no. Like, I, Look, I think that we all experience like a period in our life of total uh that's so impactful on us that your sort of development freezes there and you never get beyond that like there's always this moment of of arrested development and i think for me it was those years between running away from home at age 15 and moving to new york city at age 20 that's who i will always be mm. Um, Josh will always be that chubby 14-year-old. Well, the problem is I have reruns of my adolescence on television. <laughs> you very literally have to confront basis. that, Josh. God damn it. Um, Some people will run into me and be like, you look different. I'd be like, it's been 12 <laughs> years. God, can uh, we move on? But um, So yeah, I mean, I, 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 I identify with that person, will always identify with that person. Um, but I definitely, especially with the last couple of years of my life and having kids and starting to really appreciate what my priorities are and appreciate how far I've come, I, I, I've gotten pretty good at just being like, fuck you. Like, I don't need to explain myself to anybody. Yeah. And that is a satisfying position to be in. I feel like that's such a, a gift of adulthood. And if you've done sort of the work is that, I mean, it sounds to your point somewhat trite, but like being okay with like, 
the the person which you you've become and sort of what you're putting out there and it took me i used to always feel like i was walking into situations at a disadvantage because i was either overweight or i was just like people knew something about me or or um you know they they knew what i secretly thought of myself that i wasn't a big fan of me and i felt like i projected that before i walked into a room so i had to be the most affable or the funniest or or lay down all this groundwork just to be liked. And there was like a people-pleasing nature to that. And I feel now at 32 with some success and a kid and a wife where I just kind of walk into situations. And it doesn't mean I'm a dick, but you like me or you don't, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. And I think that that is what you're describing. Um, and certainly for me, it, it it's earned, like, I think that there's two perspectives on this. Like, you could look at it as, like, you grew up and you have, you realize that these things are no longer important. Or you grow up and you, for me, like, it was much more about earning those moments of validation. So, like, to, to be specific, like, a 17-year-old kid who dropped out of high school in the 10th grade and had a, had a baby and was literally on welfare, like, taking money from the state and was, like, a burden of the government. That is, like, I was a bona fide loser. <laughs> sure. Like, I think by all definitions, like, I was a loser. And I remember, like, my friend's parents, Kyle's mom, telling me that I was a loser and being like, Kyle, don't hang around Casey anymore. Like, he is a loser. Where's Kyle's mom now? Yeah. Exactly. Um, Still in Connecticut. <laughs> but, uh, like, that was real. Sure. It was so real. And being called stupid um, was real because I was stupid. Like, I dropped out of high school. Like, I didn't know anything. I didn't have the education or the understandings people had. I didn't have work experience. I didn't have friends. I didn't have any social experience. I didn't, I'd never traveled. I hadn't met a lot of people. Like, I was, in reality, I was those things. So, as I've gotten older, I've been able to tick those boxes. Like, like no, I'm no longer insecure about my own education. But I also am, am a fellow at MIT, and would I feel okay about my lack of education if I didn't have that, like that that card in my wallet? I literally still carry my my ID. You my love mentioning ID, MIT. MIT. Any opportunity I have to mention it, Josh. I still have three sweatshirts that I wear, like on rotation. Fuck, I would too. Yeah, you. That is earned. I took two classes at Los Angeles Valley College, and I dropped out of there. And even then, I mention it. I just yeah. did. And just just for total clarity, there are people who bust their ass and earn their way into MIT. I am not one of those people. I was invited. A fellowship sounds impressive, um, not to marginalize it, but I was invited there. I was there for a single semester where I got to participate in a, a lab group. Biggest honor of my life. But even so, I, I do think it is a kind of recognition that like helped, it got me over that insecurity. And, you know, I, I, was broke like my whole life and now I'm in a position where I actually can help other people because I have the financial means to do so so that box is ticked and like I was kind of you know like I, I never felt like I had any sense of family because I ran away from my family so young and now I have a wife and you know like three kids that I love and I, I'm very proud to take care of so I have that validation so I, I, I'm trying to draw a distinction between like it's a I got old and I had a realization that what other people think doesn't matter that's part of it. But the other part of it is like, no, like you work really hard in life and you actually get to a place where it's like, you shouldn't have to feel insecure about the shortcomings of your family because you've built your own and right. that matters. You shouldn't have to feel insecure about the fact that, you know, you weren't able to get a degree 
because you've still built a career and you did that on your own. And I can own that now. Uh, one thing I will say about the MIT, it's nice to be a fellow of MIT, right? You don't want to be like a fellow of you have no idea how satisfying, Cal State Northridge. You know how satisfying it is that you're dwelling on that. Nobody, just, I just love it. Nobody's Gosh. going around being like I'm a fellow of you know Central Florida University, Indiana. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, it is like one of the greatest honors of my whole career is getting to have had participated in that, and it's yeah, it's special. Yeah, got another ad for you. Open, fit, y'all. Getting fit and staying healthy always sounds easier said than done. Am I right? And listen, who are you going to listen to more than a guy that, that lost 100 pounds? You think I don't know your journey? I know it. You think this beautiful body of mine came about overnight? It didn't. It came through hard work and great workout apparatuses and just a, a, an overall beautiful fitness program. And open fit makes my life easier easier. Lose the commute to the gym and let the workouts come to you. OpenFit takes all of the complexity out of losing weight and getting fit. It's a brand new, super simple streaming service that allows you to work out from the comfort of your living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. Look, everyone's bodies are different. Mine is the shape of a pear, and I've accepted that, but OpenFit gets it, which is why it is personalized to your needs with custom-tailored original content like I'm a big fan of uh, Hunter McIntyre. You know, heard of him? He was just named by Sports Illustrated as one of the top 50 fittest athletes. Well, he's got a whole, you know, class and a thing with the workout. And, you know, it's kind of like a full body thing. I don't know. Every part of me hurts after. But these trainers know how to get your results quick. It's super simple. Forget all the complexity and stress around getting fit and just press play and work out on your schedule. You can access anywhere at any time and there's results you can see. Lose up to 15 pounds in just the first 30 days. So OpenFit has changed the way I work out. And with my code curious, you can join me on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Again, use my code curious and start using OpenFit for your journey to a healthier life. Right now during the OpenFit 30 day challenge, my listeners get a special extended 30 day free trial membership to OpenFit where you can lose up to 15 pounds in 30 days. When you text curious to 303030, 30, you will get full access to OpenFit, all the work Workouts and nutrition information totally free. Again, just text CURIOUS to 303030. Standard message and data rates may apply. Can you look back at any sort of apostles or people early on in your life who sort of um, brought filmmaking into your life or introduced you early on to sort of what you've become, which is this this filmmaker? Um. I mean, there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of like things that I recognize. Like my mother is just pure, nothing but creativity. Like there's no business acumen. There's no logic. She's just pure creativity. Like she painted hearts on the outside of our house because she thought it looked nice. She sideswiped our Volvo station wagon when we were kids, and instead of having my dad fix it, she painted a beehive on the side so she could paint over every scratch and make it look like it was a bee flying away. Like my mother's an incredibly creative person um and she got a video camera like, very early like a sears vhs video camera in the mid 80s or something when we were babies and she let us play with it so th there was something there um but if i if i have to point to something far more tangible it was like my my older brother van when i ran away from home uh he was in college at william and mary in williamsburg virginia 
I went down there and went to high school and I used to like sneak into film history classes with him. He would tell me about it. I'd sneak into these classes. And then he was the one who bought an iMac. Like he bought, it's actually right there. It's like that, see that, that, that blue one up there? That's fans. That. To describe to the audience where we're sitting right now, we're in Casey's studio, which if you watch the vlog, you're well-versed. But if you don't, it's sort of a hoarder's paradise to AV equipment. <laughs> it's very organized in here. It's very organized. Still gives me a little anxiety. I'll be honest. There's many items, but it's incredible. And it's sort of video equipment and editing gear of the last 20 years. Yeah, my whole career. Yeah. <laughs> but in any event, my brother Van like, showed me that computer. And what he could do on it. He made these little videos. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder if I can do that. And I tried it and I really fell in love with it. But like he, you know, he was the one who I think discovered this idea that you can just make videos. He was the one who was like, you need to watch this DVD of Spike Jones movies. And I watched it and I was like, oh my God, that's right. what I want. Spike's your want. guy, right? He, one of your heroes? Yeah, Spike Jones is like, yeah. Man, so good. It's just... You to see someone with that much talent and that little ego, I don't know him well enough to, I don't know him well enough to speak to you know him, him personally. But it's just like, it, when you think of Spike Jones, you just think about the work. You don't think of the person. And I think mm. that's such a that's such a benchmark of, of work before ego. You know what I mean? And when your work's, I mean, the guys won Oscars. Oh yeah. I mean, I, we were talking about Jackass the other day. I forget who I was talking to. That was he produced that. That was like his. That was one of his. Like, he was. He yeah. was that. That was his idea. And people are like, "Why was it so good?" I'm like, "Probably Spike Jones yeah. and Tremaine in Knoxville." But I'm like, "Yeah." When you got someone like that behind it. Yeah. I, no, there was a lot of people that made Jackass great, but just the fact that like Jackass changed everything, and he was a part. Of course, he was a part of it. Right. What do you find? You know, when you look at like auteurs like that, like the Finchers and the Spike Jones, and what do you find in, in your experience is sort of like a common thread amongst them? Because for me, from the outside, I'm, I interviewed Mark Romanek for, for the pod, and he's like, you know, one of the greatest music video directors. And, and he said, basically, he said, I'm an orchestra conductor. He said, and I surround myself with the best musicians. And so then when I get on set, it's just a matter of telling the violinist to play a little louder. Or, you know, I'm just sort of controlling the levels. So, like, what do you think is the trait of these, like, great filmmakers that allows them to do what they do? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like if you asked me that question four years ago, I'd have a really smart intellectual yeah. answer for you. But I have so divorced myself from that world. Um, you know, if, if I talk about stuff in my YouTube videos, but I, I, I produced indie movies and it's very, very successfully. And, you know, like last two movies I made went to Cannes and Sundance and we got distribution. And that used to be the world that I live in. And now I'm, I've so enveloped myself in the universe of YouTube that, like, I haven't considered what you just asked in, in so long. I haven't, haven't considered any of that. Well, that's an interesting question because, to your point, like you had so much success, so much success before YouTube with your HBO show and whatnot that when you made the leap into daily vlogging, were you sort of – was there reticence to sort of go into the digital world and away from sort of the traditional film and television? Um, reticence, no. Uh, you know – I started my YouTube channel five years before I started vlogging and I had like a bunch of viral hits. Like we didn't did a lot of views. I just didn't have any subscribers. I never really put 
I never really, you know, put anything out consistently that would speak to an audience and be like, hey, I like the guy, I want more from him. The, the reticence might have been from, I, I felt like in 2015 when I started vlogging, YouTube then was really defined by like pranksters and and that was the kind of style. Like it was very, it was very, YouTube didn't have the identity it has now then. And my concern was that I would be identified as like one of those kind of prankster YouTubers. And like I had this sort of need to defend myself. Like, no, 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 like I'm a filmmaker. And mm-hmm. I like, if you watch the early season of the vlog, I used to really be defensive about that. Sure. Before I embraced the title of, of before I just embraced it and went with it. But um, no, I think the reticence was, if there was reticence, it was that I would be associated with people on the platform that I thought were making really like unsavory content. But beyond that, it was, it kind of felt, it kind of felt exciting. Like it felt new. I do remember reading a comment on one of the early, like first five episodes of the vlog. And it was like, why is Casey Neistat vlogging now? And how I internalized that was like, they're like, why is this guy who does stuff different? Mm. Now is he, why is he like one of those YouTubers now? Welcome to my world. (laughs) (laughs) But is there, uh, this is, you're the perfect person to ask this question. Because here I am like a year and a half into YouTube and... You know, I've got like almost three three million subs. It's not bad. Like I'm making a legit amount of money doing it. And I wonder sometimes, even though like my heart is in the traditional film and television world, or maybe my ego and my heart are there, but I sometimes wonder like, am I the TV star wishing he was on the radio in the 30s? Like, am I so far into this new media that's probably going to take over and I'm just wishing, you know, missing the glory days of what I thought was of value. You know, I, that's tough. I mean, I, I think that's a tough question, right? But I think that like the verticals that you and I as old people, you're 32, I'm 37, but like the verticals that we identify as like traditional TV, narrative TV, and then traditional filmmaking, and then YouTube on this other side. I think that this younger generations that grew up with all this stuff. Like, Netflix is a novelty for us. Sure. Did you ever mail the DVDs in envelopes? Oh, yeah. Me too. Come on. Um, but for my kids, for your two-month-old, like for Max, like it's the new normal. This is just how TV's always been. Mm. So for my four-year-old, I don't think she can tell the difference between a Disney show, a YouTube show, a Netflix show, or Frozen. I think to her, there's just you pick which one you feel like you want to watch at any given moment, and you click play. So I think the long answer to that question is it doesn't matter because there's going to be such harmony among all this content. It's all going to be delivered and distributed the same way. The formalities are going to be in what it looks like. Um, that those sorts of questions are going to kind of quickly fade away. I mean, what's interesting to me now is like our mutual friend, David Dobrik. You know, David has 4 billion views on his channel, and David is like, you know, he's like, I call it airport famous. Like, you walk through the airport with him, people start freaking out. Oh, my like, God, it's David Dobrik. Sure. But when he has, like, you know, who was in his last video? Little Pump. Who was it? Yeah, Little Pump. Little Pump. Everybody's like, oh, my God, how did he ever, how could that guy, how did he get him in his video? I can't believe that huge celebrity is in David's video. When, like, if you were able to quantify how many people on planet Earth know David Dobrik's name, Versus knows little pump's name, I'd say that maybe they're the same. I would probably bet more. on David. Yeah, I'd probably, way more. 
So uh, where I'm going with this, I'm just trying to say that like the distinction that you and I recognize, I think is just going to keep fading and fading and fading. And ultimately it's going to be like media is going to be this one big blob that has consumed everything. And it's no longer going to be like, oh yeah, but he's just a YouTuber, which doesn't make him as big of a deal as that guy because that guy's on TV. Uh, well, I think there there still is that stigma, which is the beauty and perhaps like the negative optics to YouTube is that the barrier of entry is so low for social media because you could literally do it anywhere. And that for years, the way we grew up, there was sort of a hierarchy to traditional media and you had to be in a coastal city and know the right person and have representation and blah, blah, blah. And so now any sort of Joe could do it in his you know basement in Indiana. But the reality is, is that the cream does always rise to the top. And I always say, like, if you want to do it, like, give it a shot. But, like, only the people that are truly not only talented but also work hard will make – it's still a one-percenters game regardless of the, bear, you know, the level of entry. Yeah, I, I think that's very, very true. I think that it's like we've got YouTube now. We've got SoundCloud. We've got all of these truly, like, egalitarian means of distribution – where it used to be um, a, a much harder, the entry point it used to be a, like a closed, locked, barricaded door. And that was your first obstacle. That door's gone. Now right. it's just a big open door. But there aren't more, from a quantity perspective, there aren't more successful filmmakers, successful artists, celebrities now than there were 30 years ago when it was that steel door. There's the same amount. There aren't more successful musicians now than there was 20 years ago. Um, from a quantity perspective. So I just think it's like, it's just as, it's just as competitive as it ever was, but the path you take is just different now. And I think that path is a little bit more fair. Um, maybe if it's not more fair, it's at least a little bit more inspiring because you can no longer kind of have those, those excuses of like, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That went away. It's not who you know anymore. Right. Like you, you got an internet connection, you're good. Like you had, a, you had a Google account, you're good. You can do this. So I think there's real beauty in that. But I also, um, I see a lot of that sort of misinterpreting that as like, well, just because I can open up an account, I deserve to succeed. Yes. And as long as you don't have dial up. You have a chance. <laughs> as long as you don't dial up, you have a chance. And But I think like Netflix's, to me, their most brilliant pivot in all of this was when they wanted to go from a DVD mail company to a streaming service with original content. They said, let's take all the money we have and get David Fincher. And while we're at it, let's get Kevin Spacey and literally the best people at what they do. And it seems as though, even though YouTube has heightened itself to such a level, they've yet to to make that leap, to be respected in that way, or to covet that level of filmmaker, or, I mean, they do covet that level of creator, but what do you think? Like, why, why haven't, I feel like more people haven't subscribed to that model quite yet. Well, Josh, you and I made a video a week ago where we're pretending to put diapers on, on dolls. We're at 300,000 views <laughs> thus far. <laughs> um, no, I just, I do think that, like, perception will always be, you know, YouTube's a place for people to make videos about putting diapers on dolls. And Netflix did a really good job of establishing themselves as a place where David Fincher puts his $100 million television series. Yeah. And I think that um, I think that it would be as hard for Netflix to pivot to become to be seen as a YouTube mm -hmm. as it would for YouTube to pivot and be seen as a Netflix. And that's why 
I think that a lot of the YouTube original series that they put a lot of effort and energy and money behind haven't seen the kind of traction that the Netflix series have seen and the HBO series have seen. And then some of the initiatives, like I think they backed off on it, but Amazon did have an initiative to help small, you know, um, I think they refer to them as independent creators thrive on Prime. Like it never really came to fruition. It, mm. it kind of went away. Um, it's because we still see that as a more premium outlet. So I think that whenever there's these big inflection points in, in media, you know, cable in the 1970s or 80s, whenever cable came out, um, and then the internet, which we've been really lucky to get to live through in the last five or 10 years, once people understand something uh, as, uh, once people understand something as what it is, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but Netflix is a place for premium content. It's very hard to interrupt that. It's very hard to then turn that into something else. Mm. And I think that that's what YouTube's fighting. And people see YouTube as a place where people can make videos where you put diapers on dolls and that's funny. They can see videos where there's young people talking into a, you know, in, in the bedroom of their parents' house, sitting on the edge of the bed, or you know, young ladies putting on makeup, or dopes like funny looking guys like me running around New York City on skateboards. It's a place for that. Sure. And it's the, the thing that's really hard to do is then how do you go from that to have people see you as an HBO or see you as a Netflix? And my kind of defeatist answer is I don't think you can. Right. And I think that's why I think that's why YouTube hasn't made the hasn't had the success in that department as their competitors. But that YouTube's thriving; they're killing it when it comes to independent creators. So when you made the leap in 2015 to daily vlogging, and at this point, you know you're married. Your Franny was a newborn, basically a few yeah, months old. Three months old. And you decide to make a video every day. Will you tell me about the first few weeks of that? Like what your shift in life looked like when you made that commitment? Well, it was so exciting for me mm. because I thought I could do it for a week and then I was like, I can keep this going. And then I realized that like, you know, the first couple of weeks of the vlog were really exciting because like a lot of them I didn't really have to shoot much. I could just tell stories or ideas. Like I felt like I was introducing myself to the world. And or at least my YouTube audience, the hundred hundred thousand people that were watching my episodes. That you were only at a hundred thousand then. I think it was around one hundred and fifty is where I did for the first couple of weeks. Yeah, like that was that was that was launch point. Wow. Um, and which is great. It's a lot. Um, I, I had four hundred thousand subscribers, so it was really good numbers. But regardless, it was so exciting. It was so exciting because um, I kind of felt like it was validation. It was it was it was it was new. And even like if I point to my videos that were most successful before that, like um, the one where I run around the world, make it count, which is a video that I'm super proud of. I worked really hard on, you know, people still saw that and they love the message, but they're like, who the fuck is this funny guy with a big nose who's like leading us in this trip? Why do we have to listen to him? Sure. Um, or the videos that I'd post of like my marriage, like a love story video between Candace and I, like cool, like funny looking guy with a babe on a beach. Like this is a beautiful story, but who are these people? Mm. And the difference with the vlog is that it was like I was getting to share myself. And, you know, I didn't, there's bad sides to that too, but I didn't have to confront those for a while. So out of the gate, it was just, it was pure excitement. Like it was the most exciting thing. And your question was, how did that affect my life? That excitement and that enthusiasm blinded me from everything else. Meaning that like I would shoot all day and come home and just immediately sit down and start editing. And it was probably like 20 episodes in, almost a month before Candace was like, Casey, you haven't really spoken to me since you started with your videos. Oh, wives. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, don't be so needy. And what, now I have to speak to you? Oh, God. Um, 
No, and I wasn't like I wasn't aware of that. And I remember it was like a month before we had our first fight where she's like, Why is there always a camera in my face? And I was like, Oh, I guess I didn't realize. Like, okay, like let, let me not let me leave the camera at home today. And did she know what she was signing up for as far as like did you have to sort of ask her, like, you're gonna be a major cast member in this new thing I'm doing? No, but she didn't I I didn't know what I was signing up for. Mm. You know? I I mean I think if I can that, that can sound um, like I'm, I'm being dismissive of your of your question or I'm trying to evade responsibility. But like a better example, a more tangible example is like this first couple of the first couple months, I used to like show myself walking into my apartment. I showed you exactly where I lived. I showed you where my door was right. in my apartment building. I showed you where I parked my car. And I, I showed you my child like in a really intimate way. I had no cognition. I had no awareness of what that meant. And I definitely didn't know what it meant about like putting my wife out, putting Candace out there. I had no idea what it meant about putting myself out there. No idea what it meant about putting my my children out there or any of that. So I think there was like a lot of naivety. I think naivety sounds like I'm not uh, I'm not taking responsibility. A lot of irresponsibility on my end for not being more aware of what I was doing, but no, I don't think that she knew what she signed up for. I don't, I, but I, I had no idea. I mean, who starts a daily vlog and is like, I only have 400,000 subscribers and 100,000 people are seeing these episodes. But you know what? In six months, it's going to be a multiple. Like, you know, I, I, I didn't know that was going to happen. I find the same thing with my wife where she's pretty game and we'll have fun and she's super like like Candace, like compelling and charming on screen and great to look at and all these things. And then the frustration will come sometimes where then I take the footage and I forget that I have pure control over it. And then I'll upload something where she'll feel frustrated about about how she looks or what have you, which, by the way, I would feel the same where she'll just feel like, wait, like where did... I understand like that I was a part of this thing and I'm happy to be a part of it, but now you've sort of taken it and you're picking the angles or however I'm perceived. And like, cause you know, the internet can run amok and, and take, uh, I, I remember we made a video once and they were like, seems like your wife's being like a little mad at you. <laughs> and, and she's like, this is all I need. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But it's, yeah, I mean, it's look, a leap. I, I, Josh, I've swung so far in the other direction that, you know, now Candace is, I mean, you were at her house last night. You see like, Candace is like, Casey, why don't you ever make videos with me anymore? How come you don't? Candace started the podcast, um, Couples Therapy, our podcast, because, you know, she wanted to be able to continue the relationship that she developed with an audience because I stopped making videos with her um, after Francine turned one. So three years ago, I stopped putting my kids, not just in my videos, but I don't put them on social media. I don't allow anybody to take their picture. And mm. um, I, I've, I've swung so far in the other direction because I do understand now the repercussions of putting yourself out there that now I'm super protective and now it does, it absolutely inhibits my ability to share my life the way I used to, because I, I understand the consequences of, of doing so. Mm. Do you, it's, it's a great point you make too. And I find social media is sort of at the height of this is that allowing people into your life and getting to really know you. And I, I feel like our, our friend David Dobrik being that he's so young and grew up with this more than we did is so good at that. Because I remember you had this really public relationship with Liza Koshy, and then when they broke up, inevitably, I remember us talking about how he was going to sort of tackle it. 
and me being sort of like the OG said, it's no one's business. It's your relationship. Do do with it what you will. He's like, are you kidding? Like these millions of people have been a part of our relationship for years. We owe it to them to give them some closure. And of course, that video made 40 million views. Nevertheless, but, and I think I made that mistake where when I got married to my wife and I didn't invite my co-star Drake because of whatever reasons I had and, and, and years of sort of conflict between us, but we always loved each other, I sort of took that road, which I felt as though I got married, I can invite who I want. There were some cousins that didn't get invited, goddammit. Like, you can't invite everyone. And, like, I don't know anyone in explanation. And I found in the long run I suffered for that radio silence because people felt like, how could you do this to us? How could you not explain? Yeah, I think that anybody who says, like, you know, you don't owe your audience anything, I think they're wrong. I think mm. you do. Like, you do have an obligation. If you're going to... If you're going to build a career on the backs of an audience, if you're going to collect that AdSense because people are deciding to click play and you're, you're asking them to click play, there is a kind of obligation there. And I think that, like, I think that the breakup video is a, a, an example that I can speak to more than your, your wedding. But <laughs> the breakup video is like, right. Like, no, people do have a right to know because people tuned in for that relationship for so, so long. And I think that you're now getting at something that I, I really struggle with because now I, I, don't, I don't know where to draw the line. I think luckily people are starting to care less about me, um, which I appreciate and it makes it easier for me. But like, I remember when I stopped vlogging and it was like, I felt like I had to explain everything and I felt like I had to give all these answers. And the way I dealt with that is just by being like, fuck it, I'm not going to give anybody any answers. And I, I was wrong. So it's, I think it's it's a very complicated thing i don't think that there's a right or a wrong to it but i do think that when you have a personal relationship you're not putting out um josh the character from your tv show you're putting out josh the real person sitting across from me you're putting that out into the world like you are opening up a can of worms that you are responsible for mm. and yeah i mean it's funny i, I remember talking to liza about this sort of when she took a step back from youtube and you know, she's so incredibly talented and understands this world. And, and I said, here, because it's easy to contemplate when something's going well, why you would ever put the brakes on it. And what I said to her was that, here's the good news. You're screwed either way. Because you could ride this out for another year, two, three, give the people exact, exactly what they want. But inevitably, at some point, there's going to be one comment that goes, wow, she's really doing this jet character a lot. Or there'd be one comment to be like, God, Casey and the skateboard, it's like enough already. Or Josh, you're enough of this self-deprecation. Like inevitably it will, your thing that's winning, you'll have to pivot it somehow. And so having the power to sort of pull the plug on it yourself and saying, listen, I will have the faith that I gave you one something that won and that you loved and that I'm possible of giving you something else before what I used to do expires. It's a scary notion. Yeah, I think, and I think you're absolutely right that like, yes, you can give something new and something different in the future. The scariest thing is that you're never going to get to do that again. Right. And so what that means, like, I mean. To be so loved. I, to for, be so approved. For me personally, like, I'm editing a video right now um, and there's a reference in it. It's about my studio and there's a reference in it to the an earlier episode, like episode six of the vlog. And I'm watching that and I remember 
I'm watching it back and I'm like, whoa, everything I'm saying here, I'm saying for the first time. And that's why people were so excited to hear it. They're like, here's this guy we don't know. And he's saying all these things we, we get to learn about for the first time from him. And I was like, I will never get to do that again. So there's things I can do in my career that will, you know, I hope I'll find, uh, I'm confident I'll find successes in my career and do all sorts of new things, but I'll never get to do that again. And that's a really scary thing to confront. Yeah. I'll never get to be the new hot YouTuber again forever. I'll never be that. Ugh. <laughs> and, and it's it's I think the hardest part of that is that when you are in that moment there's no recognition of it never like I was in LA last week and I'm talking to David about it and talking to his vlog squad I'm literally asking him about it and he has no awareness that he is in that he's it right now and I hope he's it for a really long time but I can tell you without any question he won't be it forever it's just the way it is right even Madonna fell off she like took her until she was like 60 but whatever like, everyone, you, everyone, you. No one gets to be it. Like I, I think about this too with like the Twenty Seven Club, right? Like the Kurt Cobains and the Hendrixes and like Basquiat and all these people that are are idols and brilliant, brilliant artists. And yet, inevitably, one of them would have done Dancing with the Stars had they lived. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, it's just the way it goes. Everyone has it. Like no, everybody gets a a, a window, no matter how big it is, and that. And that, I think, is something that is, unfortunately, you only get to really recognize that in retrospect. Right. I, so I think I sort of, uh, were, I was introduced to your, your channel with your sort of seminal video of the tour of the Emirates flight. So That was the first time you saw my vlog? I that was like so. a year and a half in, man. I, I thought, what was all that one in a million talk, Josh? That was even before, <laughs> that was even before I had met David Dobrik. Was and, it really? Oh, this is like, I'm new to YouTube. This was like 2016, September-ish, October. Mm -hmm. So you have this video that got, what, 35 million views, 40 million? 60. I no bragging. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't checked in minutes, but last I checked, 60. No big deal. <laughs> and obviously, it's a culmination of all this hard work of, you know, more than a decade. Tell me about the hour and then the day and the week and the month after that video got posted, what your life looked like. Well, so that that was the sort of the the um, apex. That was like the crescendo. That was the hockey sticks of my whole YouTube career was that video. So I had, you know, 2015, a year earlier, um, I would say 15 months earlier is when I started the vlog. And I never missed a day, including right up until that, that video. I never really... Never missed a day. No, I think there might have been, if I don't remember the timeline, but I did take a trip, romantic trip with my wife, and I took four days off. I was like miserable. Yeah, <laughs> don't tell I'm sure. I was like, I just had to make my damn video. Um, to be with her, because I, I felt like I owed that to her. I wasn't doing it for me, believe me. I wanted to make my videos. <laughs> um, but I never missed a day. And I had seen continued growth through my channel, like... A million subscribers, then I made it to two million subscribers, and three million, I think I made it to four million, and I watched my monthly views, like, I made it right close to a hundred million views in a month, which is like, I could have never imagined, but then I dropped that video, and that video, I knew it was like, I thought it was good, and then I knew it would do well, because like, um that thing was just so interesting. Like seeing a seat like that was fascinating. And was it the first of its kind giving a tour of that sort of Yeah, level? nobody had really made a video like that before. And mm. moreover, that like seat was a new thing. And like anybody who, you know, like 
what is it like? It, relatability is really important. Anybody who's ever been on an airplane in their entire life could relate to that. Right. So you're talking like if you have access to YouTube, like say 60% of the 3 billion people that now have access to YouTube, they've probably been on an airplane um, at least once or they've at least seen an airplane. No one's ever seen that. And they've been on Spirit Airlines <laughs> sure. to charge for water. Right, exactly. So <laughs> see, there's a wide net of relatability with that video. And then the airline was so cool letting me film it. I happened to have all my gear and the video turned out, I thought it was like really punchy and fun. And I was like, cool, let me see how this goes. And there was a luck to the fact that, I think in the video you talk about that you you happen to be upgraded to first class. Yeah, so I found out later, because I talked to Emirates about it, that they I made a video on my way out, I was going to Australia, and in business class, and they saw that video. So someone had, on their PR team flagged it, and they're like, look, if this guy flies back and we have a seat, give him a free upgrade. Wow. As in like an appreciation. That's unreal. And that's in the video where I like, I didn't pay for that seat, but then I came back and I Googled it and I was like $21,000. And the $21,000 first class airplane seat is like the greatest title. There's like, that's like a clickbaited 10 ways from uh, 10 ways over. But um, no, that video is unique in the fact that it was a viral video by all definitions. It was also somewhat newsworthy, like news outlets could talk about it. Like BBC isn't going to talk about a vlog I make that my audience likes, but BBC could talk about that because it was about an airplane seat. Mm. So it got all this mainstream press, but the video was very much so about me personally. So everybody that watched it, like, oh, who's this like, who's this grown ass man child with a backwards hat who keeps giggling on an airplane? Like, I like him. And then they watch another video like, whoa, this guy makes this same video every day, but it's about different stuff. So it wasn't just that that video blew up, but my channel exploded. So the month in the month after that, I want to say I did a million or a million two new subscribers in 30 days. Um, Does the video become viral immediately? Not like my other ones. Like when I did the snowboarding behind a truck in New York City, it was like the video released and like my phone exploded within hours and news outlets were calling and they were playing it in Madison Square Garden that night. And it was like this explosion of excitement that 36 hours later was gone. Like right. over the world had moved on, but that video just kept going and going and going, and it was like the most watched video on my channel for like fifty straight days, um, and it led to more conversions, like more subscribers than anything I had done. So, like before that video, my vlogs were doing a million and a half views. After that video, my my vlogs were doing like two and a half to four million views every day, um, and it really like that continued right until I stopped vlogging, which was about four or five months later. And at that point, are you, before that, are you getting recognized? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that brought it to a, look, at like your, your, your target mom or target dad isn't like, I mean, target the, the retail store. Sure. Someone pushing a shopping cart in Target doesn't subscribe to my vlogs. But when they see that, like I still get like, oh, you're that guy from that. The thing I get a lot is like, you're the guy from that airplane video. I still get a lot though. Like you're the guy from the drone video. Mm. I don't even know what that means. I've made like 50 videos about drones. Well, you're the but... only one that's hung off of one while snowboarding. Sure, but I also think if you type in drone. Right. You know, so there's like, there's that. But yeah, like that really, that video was a major shift in my relationship with YouTube and the world and everything else. Was there, uh, and obviously we know now that like there's never quite a moment of feeling delivered. Or like that you've made it to the finish line. But can you pinpoint a a moment, maybe it was that time, maybe it was later, 
where you felt satiated, like, wow, I've done, like where at least for a couple of days, maybe a couple of hours, you're like, I'm okay. Like, I've done it. Uh-uh. Casey matters. Uh, no, I, I mean, in a very like superficial ego, egotistical way, sure. It's like, yeah, all right, I'm number one. Get the most views on YouTube today. Like, yeah. But that doesn't, definitely doesn't now. And I even think then like doesn't hold that much capital. I think like right now, you know, like I'm gearing up when, you know, when we finally move the family out West and all that, like I'm gearing up to slow down. Like I want to spend more time at home with my kids when they're babies. And that is kind of the first time in my life where I have the kind of self-awareness where it's like, I can do that. And that feeling is much more um, for me of what you're describing of like, whoa, that's like such an earned thing. Mm. My dad's, my dad's 67. He doesn't, he's never felt that way. And I, I, I'm, I feel that way. And then I can really stop and appreciate it from a really, really like genuine, sincere place that like, wow, like all the hard work and mostly luck, a lot of hard work. And then mostly luck got me to a place where it's like, I'm in a position where I can actually just like choose to slow down to do what I want, which is be with my family. And it's like, whoa, that is in, that's like one of the most overwhelming feelings um, or self-actualizations ever. Who's the coolest person who took notice of what you do and was like, Casey, like I was talking to Simon Rex the other day and like Dirt Nasty. I love Dirt Nasty. <laughs> and he was like, dude, I was at a, a Oscar party the other day and Leonardo DiCaprio comes up to me. He's like, I love Crystal Meth Rico. <laughs> and he was like, what the fuck? You're Leonardo DiCaprio. And he's like, I love it. Your IG kills me, bro. Keep doing what you're doing. And he was like, cool, can I be in a movie with you? No, he didn't say that. But like, <laughs> so did you have one of those moments? Um, yeah, I mean, really, what really caught me off guard was like, um, when I went to the Academy Awards with Samsung in 2016, I think, and they, this is true, and I think I may be banned from the Academy Awards because of this, but they accidentally gave me a pass that granted me access to anywhere and everywhere. Solid. Yeah, it, it was a mistake. <laughs> yes. I mean it. Like, they tried to have the video pulled afterwards. It was like a huge deal. Why? Because I have a vlog where I'm walking around backstage during the Academy Awards, and like, I thought it was, I'm in the winner's room in the winner's circle. And That's like, amazing. I'm in the elevator with like, Jennifer, what's her name? The, the Garner, Anison Lawrence. Lawrence, when she had won her Oscar. Wow. She's like holding it like looking over at me and literally goes like, so what are you doing in here? As I'm like holding my YouTube camera. And like, I, uh, in any event, shouldn't have been there, but I was. And there's like, a, I guess one, like the bottom level of where it was, there was a bar down there that it, it seemed like where all the winners were hanging out. Mm. And I'm wandering around down there. And on three different occasions, it might have even been four, Someone came up to me, and I remember like one woman came up to me. She's a producer, that's why I, I don't, I don't necessarily know her name. Um, but she came up to me, and she goes, "You, is this you?" And she points to her cell phone. I was like, "Yeah, it's me." And she's like, "My kids texted me this picture, and they said you're the one I have to find. Now, why do I have to find you of all the people at the Academy Awards?" And I'm having to explain myself to a woman who literally has an Oscar in her hand. Really? Yes, she had an Oscar in her hand. Because her kids watch my videos. And like that, in that moment was like, whoa. Like I have found a back door, like an alternative means of accessing this like really secret, 
hard to get into club, which is like literally like Oscar winners. Like, Jeez. I was an interloper. <laughs> I had no business being there. You're like, you see Catherine Bigelow. I'm a pretty big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of Catherine Bigelow. I would have recognized her. Your 10 year old is pretty hip. Um, so, and then is it true that the president of CNN was introduced to you through his kid? Yeah. Yeah. And then went on to buy your company for a very healthy sum of money? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't diminish it to that. Like, I think no, no, they no. were, I think they were, the introduction. they were very aware of what I was doing. And I think they were conscious of some of the work that I had done with New York Times in years prior. And I think that they, you know, were very excited about what my tech company was capable of from a technical perspective. But certainly, like, the catalyst was the fact that, you know, they had seen YouTube videos and like, okay, like, let's talk to, let's talk to Casey. Mm. But yeah, I think the YouTube videos were the, the YouTube videos were the catalyst. Was, is there a negative to being recognizable and having so much, do you look sort of back now when you were a little bit, it was a little bit easier for you to blend into the crowd where that was sort of a benefit as far as just a creator standpoint? Like now that you're more highly recognizable, are people constantly walking into your shots? Yeah, it's it's not that like you know I would say I don't upload regularly anymore, and I the the content changed a lot, and I think it changed the relationship with the audience that the audience has with me in the videos. But there was a long time, um, especially like towards the last year of the vlog, where I felt like I I lost New York City because mm. um, I couldn't walk around New York City. I definitely couldn't walk around New York City talking into a camera. Or on a hoverboard. Or, or on a skate. Yeah. yeah. Well, the irony of the skateboard is the skateboard is the only way I could travel without, you know, being asked for selfies a lot. Yeah. To the point where it would sort of inhibit my ability to film or anything like that. But I remember that was really upsetting when I felt like I lost New York. Like, in the first hundred episodes of the videos, it's always like the cameras just drop somewhere in New York City and I pop into frame. And that always was so satisfying to film. And then I just couldn't do that anymore. Because kids would show up everywhere. Or filming in airports. I love filming in airports. Can't do that anymore. Did you ever have to get... I tried to sort of vlog in the way because we all tried to be the, the next Casey Neistat when we watched your channel. And I remember getting introduced to vlogging in that way. And I just... You seem to have this beautifully unabashed confidence about talking into a camera. And I've seen your rig. And it ain't a GoPro. It's like a massive shotgun mic, a good healthy-sized camera, and a mini tripod. And I see you talking to it everywhere. And I'm like, Casey just don't give a fuck. Like, he doesn't care that he's talking to a camera in front of everyone. And I honor it. But, like, do you ever feel uncomfortable doing it? No, I'm always uncomfortable. I'm faking it. Really? Oh, 100%. Solid. Like, I, um, NerdWriter, who's a great YouTuber, made this video that breaks down my whole vlogging style. And he's brilliant because he, like... He, everything he says is right. And I'm like, well, I can't believe somebody actually realized all that shit. But um, you will never really find in any of my videos, when I'm, no matter how crowded the area, where I'm talking to the camera, where there's someone kind of awkwardly looking into the lens behind me or anything like that. Never. They're, they're, I'm not never. There are definitely, there's a couple of anomalies out there. But typically, like, if somebody looks into the camera, I either acknowledge them or I make it part of it. But that's not an accident. Like for every moment where it looks like I'm out in the wild talking to the camera, there's five minutes of me standing there waiting for somebody to move so they're not behind me. So I don't have to talk to the camera in front of people. Right. Um, so no, I think there was like a much, much higher 
degree of calculation in those videos than anybody ever realized. But um, you you have like an uncanny ability in where like I tried to do sort of vlogging in the way that David does it or that you did it um, for the first year that I was on YouTube to middling reviews at best. 100,000 views, channel wasn't really growing, I wasn't really happy. And I remember my uh, our mutual friend Joe Volpis who helps David with his vlog said to me, you know, you've sort of made a career being in front of the camera. Like, why don't you be in front of the camera and see how that goes? And that was when I set up the camera and did a mukbang with Trisha, eating hot wings and just talking shit for a half hour. And of course, eating wings with Trisha is a million views guaranteed no matter what. But I remember in that moment, A, feeling happier, and I felt like the audience could feel that, that Mm. I was suddenly in my element. Yeah. And that's what I've done since. And and to, you know, pretty good reviews. Not bad. Um, <laughs> I'm a subscriber. I'm a, I'm fascinated. I only have a few more questions. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by really successful people and their ability in which to sort of run with blinders on. And so I wonder, I wanted to ask you, when you have moments of defeat or something doesn't work out the way you had hoped or uh, something isn't received well, how long do you mourn losses? Do they affect you? They, yeah, anybody who says they don't affect you is full of shit. <laughs> they affect you. But losses don't affect me as much as mistakes. Mistakes kill me. Mm. Because I, none of my mistakes are, um, none of my mistakes are, accidents they're all unforced errors and when i think of those mistakes i think of like um i think anybody who watched any of my videos like i'm not a super big fan of donald trump um i don't want to get into the why but it's not mostly political it has much more to do about sort of moral and ethics and things like that and and when i made the video sort of not endorsing him um and, and endorsing hillary clinton i I just think I, I did it wrong. It like started from a place of emotion instead of a rational place. And I don't, I certainly don't regret at all sort of sharing my political opinions. I think I, I think it's important to do that, but I think you have to do it from a place of respect and understanding. And I think that my video lacked respect and it lacked understanding. And I think of this video, this great video that Jesse and I made in France for Samsung. We shot on Samsung phones and I didn't make it super clear that it was shot on Samsung phones. And I sort of had this idea in the back of my head that, like, no, people will think it's cool when they find out we shot it on phones. And of course not. Like, what the fuck was I thinking? It was a total, like, unforced error. Like, if I had taken another day to, like, take a deep breath, exhale, watch the video back, and be like, you know what? Let me put it at the beginning because then it will, you know, then people won't be caught Qualified. off guard. Yeah. Right. That was a mistake. And because people, no matter how good it was, it's still... Well, people just felt like they were being tricked. And like I should have recognized that. And I think that in the, the you know, Hillary Clinton one that people found upsetting, people were right to be upset. And I don't think... I think you know, there's definitely people that will say they're upset because they, they're, they are fans or they have differing political perspectives. That's always okay. But I think the majority of the negative feedback was completely fair. I think it was the negative feedback about how I did it. And same with like the Samsung video, which is such a great video. It works so hard on that. It's a really wonderful project. And people did, there was a lot of, I got a lot of support for that too, but the support always had a little bit of an asterisk. And the asterisk was like, 
you know, I, sh- I should have handled that better. And But with that knowledge of your initial video about Trump, do you make a video in 2020 or do you just stay with stay away from it entirely? No, no. I, I think that like, I think that, I think that it, it, it's sort of, for me anyway, I, I, I would feel almost like a coward if I had something to say and I didn't say it because I'm afraid of repercussions. Um, and that's not the that's not the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm trying to make is when you have an audience or you care for that audience as I do, you have an obligation, um, and that obligation is one of thoughtfulness and respect. And the times, and there's many more, like there's many more um, of, of fuck-ups that I've had. You know, there's like one video of me picking on a police officer. And it was not the reality. The bike lane? No, no, no. It was one where there's like a cop in a tiny... <laughs> little micro machines car and I like make fun of him for it. Right. And like people got on my case about that. And I think people were right. And I, the reality of the situation is like, I know that cop, his name's rich. Like we text all the time. He's like a friend of mine, but I didn't give it context. And the thing is like every one of these screw ups, it's always because I rushed and I didn't stop and think. And that's really hard for me. I, I lose sleep over that still because it's like, Casey, how could you have been so stupid? Why wouldn't you have taken a minute Watch it back with with a clear head and realize that like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. If I'm going to do that, I need to frame it like this so people really understand that there was no malice there. If I'm going to make a video that's about, um, you know, my political opposition towards something or how I feel about something politically, let me make sure I can do it so people can see it and they can agree with me or disagree with me, but they don't feel like um, it's an affront. If I'm going to make a video for a, you know, for a brand, obviously, like, let me really disclose it and be super clear so people know what they're seeing. That way they feel like they've got the choice. Do I want to choose to, yes, watch this content or no, don't, because that's how I'd want it to be felt. It's just like, you know, it's the golden rule that I tell my four-year-old all the time. It's like, treat others the way you want to be treated. Yeah. And when I don't respect that because I'm rushing or because I'm stupid or because I'm hot-headed, that is something that, like, it kills me, Josh. It pains me on levels because it's like it is that fucking unforced error. We didn't lose the game because I, I didn't play hard. We lost the game because I kicked the ball in the wrong goddamn goal. Well, there it's the danger of, of what we do, and we've seen it sort of go terribly for certain creators, is, is the idea of rushing. And, you know, in traditional media, everything takes a fucking year and a half from, like, inception to delivery. But, you know, especially when you're you, – and not that you're ever chasing views, but, you know, if, if you're, to your point, rushing, I think that's a great sort of uh, uh, risk and fear for most creators, right? Yeah, I mean, look, it always comes down to your own judgment. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, you know, I have a thousand videos on my channel, and I'm able – I can come up with you three or four instances where I feel like I really – demonstrated poor judgment so was that just in a need to feed the machine and get a video up that day i mean look it was an amalgam of facts it's always an amalgam of factors when you screw up but like thinking back to those exact moments yeah it was like rushing it was also ego you know it's like i've never screwed up before i'm right here Mm. Um, i'm not saying that to anybody somebody saw it before i posted i'm saying it to myself when the reality is like now i'm so hyper aware and now I do a thing where, like, you know, I always watch my videos back three times before I post them. Really? Yeah. So I watch it in the edit. Do you show anyone else? Never. Never. I mean, if it's a brand or something, I will. Or if I if I don't know if something's good, I'll show it to somebody. But typically, no. Like, I trust my judgment. Yeah. I'll watch it back in the edit bay, and then I'll export it, watch back the quick time, and then I'll upload it and watch it back on YouTube. And I have a rule now where, like, if there's anything that I smell, 
any sort of gut where it's like that kind of felt weird, but whatever. I like stop. And I'm like, no, no, no. Whatever I just felt is real. And if I felt it, others are going to feel that way. Right. And therefore revisit it and, and try to figure out like, what am I trying to say here? And where did I screw up? And I just think that like, you know, it took a thousand videos for me to learn that. And when I'm in the cadence of seven videos a week, every week for 150 weeks or whatever it was, um, that, that filter was not as, there were times where there were sort of aberrations in that filter. Well, the brilliance of, and I talked with my buddy Joe about this recently, like we all decided, I mean, it, it, God bless the Google AdSense model, but the beauty of what we do, right, is that we had an idea, we created videos, we started uploading it, and for better or for worse, money started coming from it. And we don't have a boss, we're sort of like at our own discretion at all times, and it's beautiful and blessed. And yet, it's funny, I had a buddy who was writing a TV show for Disney, and I was there during a table read of it because he brought in a couple of buddies of, of his to help punch up the script. And I had to sit through, after that table read, standards and practices coming in and saying, for one hour, you can't have the kid hide in the trash can with the lid down because other kids might emulate that and then they could suffocate. And you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this and them having to bring all that in. But we have none of that. You know, We don't have that committee. It, it falls upon us to be like, is this exactly what I want to be putting out into the lexicon? Yeah, yeah, uh, you're right. And so the responsibility falls on us. Yes, you're you're right. Like speaking um, empirically, you're right. Um, I I stop you or I interject because I I don't think it's a valid excuse. And who I'm thinking of when I say that? One, I'm thinking of myself. Like um, the times that I've screwed up, I could be like, yeah, but you know, there's always been someone there to filter, and there's nobody but me, and I screwed up. And it's like, no, that's bullshit. If I've got that big of an audience, I have to own that, and I mm. cannot make mistakes. No, I agree. But I'm also thinking about Logan, um, you know, Logan Paul. Logan. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, like I, I do, I like Logan, I like Jake, and, I've, you know, I've known those guys since long before YouTube, and um, I've done, like, you know, an exhaustive interview with Logan, and I think that, I think that he's very quick to identify these sorts of things, like, you know, young, mixed-up kid, got caught up in it, posting every day, was on the other side of the country, was quick to, you know, didn't give it as much attention as he should have, was rushing and clicked upload. And if I'm going to call bullshit on that excuse, which I do, I don't, I, like, I don't care for any of that. Don't ever say that excuse again. Yes. Just erase everything you just said and just save that last part. I screwed up. Um, that's what I expect from him. And so therefore, like, that's, that's the same standard that I hold myself. Like, any shortcomings I've ever had, anything I've ever posted, are one person's fault and one person's only, and that's me. And there's no excuse, none. So I don't like to dwell on why it happened, because it should never happen. And if you're someone who thinks it's, you're someone who wants to benefit by having millions of subscribers, you're someone who has to own every single aspect of that. And there's no, like, there's no excuse. There's no, I don't think there's any margin for error. Errors you hear that, PewDiePie? No. <laughs> Easy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, all right, so last question. I ask everyone this on the pod. What are your one or two Casey Neistat commandments, truths that you have discovered throughout your life that you would want to impart upon someone else? Um, work will always... Always, always, always set you free. Wait, what did it say above the arch at... Um, McDonald's? N no. <laughs> God, no. 
<laughs> no, not sort at, of two arches. Not at Golden not at arches. McDonald's. Um, yeah, work will always work is always the answer. Is something that I've experienced in life. Like every time I've ever been stuck, work has always saved me, and I, that is a truth that I subscribe to, and. Um, it's one that I, 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 I push to impart on any young person is like you're feeling down work, like girlfriend broke up with you, your boyfriend broke up with you, work, um, want something that you don't have work, want to be somewhere you're not work. And the more I um, sort of subscribed to that religion, the happier I became as a person. Uh, so there's that. But now I feel like I have to qualify that by saying this is not like the, the hustle sort of you know the hustle mentality of like you have to work a thousand hours a week if you want to get to where you want to no 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 what i'm referring to very specifically is like any time in life that i've been stuck if i can just put my head down and do something it's always open the open the next door it's always helped push me forward yeah love it love work love it wait was that it well unless you got another one another commandment um uh i mean there's kind of a lot but you don't have to you can mic drop it right there and be like, nice stat out. <laughs> subscribe. Do you say subscribe at the end of your podcast? No. No, okay. Um, yeah. I just feel so YouTube. You're the first, yeah. I haven't spoken to David on this. You're the first one. How many episodes of your podcast have you done? Uh, I've recorded 70. This is, but uh, 44 so are out. Yeah, dude, I've had some good people. People say yes. Look, look, we're here. I never said yes. You showed up in my office with your stuff and set it up you put a microphone in my hand well you think you get this far with uh (laughs) (laughs) by asking permission come on what are you Um, talking about no i mean look i could i could vomit bad advice forever but i um i appreciate you having me on thank you for coming this is an extremely compelling conversation my man and I should put this in the context that Josh was at my house last night with my two kids and my wife till like 11 o'clock at night. We we're having like a almost identical conversation to this. Not far. Not far. Yeah. It's a little bit de- a little bit more colorful. Well, we talked about Wreck-It Ralph a little with his four-year-old, but other than that. Besides the Wreck-It Ralph stuff, this fair. is it. All right. Thanks, dude. That was it. That was Casey Neistat. How about that, huh? What a guy. God, love him. Love him. Man. Uh, great pod. Great time, guys. If you're listening to this, you're probably going back back to work after that great three-dayer. You got to go see fucking, you know, Kathy's ugly face. <laughs> you walk into the office and you're like, there she is with her smelly food that stinks up the fridge, the communal fridge. And you're like, you're just, you come back to a gang of emails and you're like, shit, Man, you almost resent the three-day weekend now, because you're like, God, it was almost too much time off. Now I feel like I'm just being slapped with the reality of my situation, but you know what? It's all going to be all right. It's okay. You're doing a great job. You're going to ease back in. It's almost Wednesday, which means it's almost the weekend. You're going to be fine. Try to avoid Kathy's gross food that she brings from home. You're like, dude, please don't bring Indian food to the office. It's a delicious cuisine, but it has a strong aroma. And it's just disrespectful, man. Go enjoy it outside. Just don't put it in the fridge because then it makes everything smell. You know what I'm saying. You know what I mean. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, God, I love Indian food. It's so good. It's really delicious. Indian food. Um, I like a, I, I just like a 
plethora of different cuisines. But but that's me, and no need to get into it. Anyway, guys, have a great week. Love you. Bye.